We're going to read from God's Word now from Matthew chapter 2, reading from verse 13, and I know it says down to verse 23, but we're just going to read down to verse 18 this morning. So that's Matthew 2, reading from verse 13 down to verse 18. Um, personally, I've never heard a sermon preached in these words before. I don't know if, if you have. Um, it's quite an interesting piece of scripture, but hopefully this morning we we uh, have hearts that are receptive to what God has to say to us through it, uh, and we see how it all ties into uh, the nativity and actually how we move out of Christmas, the Christmas nativity season, into the rest of what Christ came, uh, Christ came to do. That's Matthew 2, verse 13 down to verse 18. Let's read these words together. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and, and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his holy and inspired word. I guess it's one of these bits of scripture you don't really know where you fit in with the nativity because it's not very Christmassy when you have headed looking to destroy Jesus and you have headed looking then having to kill all these uh, children under the age of two years old. And it's not a very Christmassy type of feel um, uh, Bible passage. And, and maybe, you're, maybe people wonder, well, where does this fit in, into all that Jesus came to do? How does this relate to what Christ came for? I came across this quote this week and, uh, week, and I really, really like it. And this is what it says. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with the flocks, then the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal those broken in spirit, to feed the hungry, to release the oppressed, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among all peoples, to make a little music with the heart, and to radiate the light of Christ every day, in every way, in all that we do, and in all that we say. Then the work of Christmas begins. It's a thought, isn't it, that the work of Christmas begins. But for so many, for so many in our world, and maybe even for people in our community, maybe even for some of us in our church, that the nativity story Christmas ends with the 26th of December. Once the wise men have come and they've given Jesus their three gifts, we put behind us the whole Christmas story. But friends, what we read in the gospel is that Jesus came with a clear and objective a missional mandate. There was a purpose for him coming. The work of Christmas had to begin. God's 
plan. This is what John Piper says. He so eloquently puts it. God's plan was not that through Christ you'd have salvation, but that through salvation you'd have Christ. Not that through Christ you'd have salvation, but that through salvation you'd have Christ. That is God's plan. The reason Jesus came was to bring reconciliation between God and man. So that God could dwell with his people again. It's what we read at the end of Revelation 21, that God's dwelling place is now with his people. It was his plan all along was that from the garden of eden where he enjoyed man enjoyed the very presence of god sin came it disrupted that and we have this redemption plan that god instills and we see it fulfilled in the person of christ through the works of christ through the death of christ through the resurrection of christ and the ascension of christ and then we will see it in its fulfillment in the return of christ God's plan is his dwelling place with his people. But for that to be certain and needed, reconciliation had to happen. And for reconciliation to take place, God had to take on flesh. He took on flesh and came to earth. Last Sunday, Christmas Day, can you believe this? Christmas Day was last Sunday. We briefly looked at the wise men coming to give Jesus gifts and worship him. They came from the east. They'd seen a star rise. They'd followed his star. The star had kind of told them that the, there was that one who was going to be born, the king of the Jews. So they follow the star. They end up going to the palace because where else would a noble birth take place? So they go to a palace. But as per Micah 5, 2, the Messiah wouldn't be born in a palace, but be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And as the wise men bring this news to King Herod, King Herod is troubled by the news of the birth of one who could be called king. He asks the wise men, to, once they found this one who was born, to come back and to tell him where the baby had been born so that he could go and worship him to where is this child so that I may too worship him. However, we read in verse 12, as the wise men leave Jesus' side, that an angel tells them not to return to Herod, but to go back home another way. Why did they not go back to see Herod? Well, we read it at the beginning of our passage this morning in verse 13. Another angel appears to Joseph once again in a dream. Verse 13, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt because Herod is going to search him out and destroy him. Matthew deliberately refers to the family dynamic in this way. It's already happened a few verses prior. I think it's in verse 11 when we read the child and his mother. That's how the angel speaks to Joseph. Take the child and his mother. And I think there's two reasons for this. The first is that Joseph has no biological connection to the baby who's been born. And Matthew is once again highlighting the importance and the significance of the theological point of the virgin conception and birth. 
that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. And we've thought about why that's important a few weeks ago. But also he refers the, the, to the, the family dynamic in this way because the child is the, the, the center point and the central focus of the narrative. Jesus is the important person in what is playing out here. Jesus is the central point in what we are reading. That's why we read, it's because it reads quite funny, the child and his mother. It's not really how we would speak, but that's why I think um, Matthew records it in this way. And the warning Joseph received was to take Jesus and Mary and head to Egypt because of Herod's murderous plans. We read that Herod's plan was to search the child out and destroy him. A plan straight from the pits of hell. We see throughout scripture the devil's schemes and plans that he tries to bring. We see, when we think back to Genesis at the beginning of, the, of scripture where we read of the serpent and he led humanity into sin and since then, there's been a war between the devil and his demons and the human race, trying to thwart God's plans of redemption. We see it in numerous, numerous occasions where there's things that happen to God's, God's people that we see the, the, the plans of the enemy coming against him. But friends, what I love is that our God is greater still. That even though the devil from the very pits of hell is trying to conjure up these plans to stumble God's people, as Exodus tells us, we have a God who fights for us. We might not see it. There might be things that we never see. But friends, believe me, because the Bible tells us that God is fighting on our behalf. There are things happening in the heavenly realms that we might never ever know about. The devil's plans that he's trying to bring to trip us up and to lead us off into the wrong places and the wrong times and the wrong moments. But God is fighting for us. And we see God's sovereign plan at work here as well. Even as the devil and his demons are trying to ruin God's redemption plan, even in the incarnation, God is at work. God is a step ahead God is warning the angels. God is, war the, God is warning the wise men. God is warning Joseph. God is at work. But isn't there also a similarity between Adam's sin and Herod's motive here? The serpent said in Genesis 3, you will be like God. You will be like God in Genesis 3. Friends, that is the biggest struggle we have. Each one of us wants to be like God. We want to sit on the throne of our own heart. Each one of us fight for that place. And friends, if we're honest, it's, it's acting in idolatry when we do that. When we don't submit ourselves to God and his plans and we say, you know, God, I hear what you're saying, but hear me out. I have a better way. I have a better plan. And isn't that what we see Herod do here? He's feeling threatened. His throne is threatened. His power is threatened. His authority is threatened at the challenge Jesus would bring. And even if we're honest, friends, maybe even some of us here this morning, maybe we can identify with Herod a little bit. 
They are scared at this news that we've heard over this Christmas season. And we feel that maybe this Jesus stuff, maybe it will change my life just a little bit too much. Friends, don't snuff out the work the Spirit's doing in your life. Bend the knee before Christ. Submit to Him. And give over the throne of your heart. We see, even later on in Scripture, isn't it funny, we see it at the beginning of Christ's life and then near the beginning, at the end of His life as well here on earth, where we see Herod and then we see Judas, the devil at work, trying to ruin what God is doing. But look at what Herod does. The wise men don't come back, so he develops this murderous scheme. We read about it in verse 16. Horrific stuff. Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men. He became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The wise men don't come back to tell Herod where Jesus is, so Herod takes it into his own, his own hands. And I said to you last week that the picture cards and um, Christmas cards and the images of the nativity scene that we have where we see the beautiful picturesque kind of uh, manger with the stable and Mary, Joseph, Jesus, the animals, the shepherds, and then the, the, the wise men all together probably isn't how scripture, it will happen in scripture because we see um, probably the wise men turned up when Jesus was a toddler. That's why Herod killed, uh, sends out to kill all the, 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 the male children two years old or under. And then we read in verse 17 from the prophet Jeremiah, verse 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Throughout the Christmas Bible verses that we read, there's so many um, Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. It is quite staggering. And this, this Old Testament passage from, um, in verse 18 that we have is a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, which in its original context portrays the image of the lament of the mothers in Israel wailing as their sons were led off into exile. But the use here of the name of Rachel, I think, is quite staggeringly beautiful. Because Rachel was the mother of Joseph, who was also taken away into Egypt. And over the last year or so, when we've looked at different um, Old Testament characters and, and um, narratives, I've, I've used this word time and time again about typology. And what we see in the person of Joseph in the Old Testament is he is a, a type of Christ. And I'll, I'll, I'll refresh your mind about what that means. Typology or a type of Christ is events and people in the Old Testament that seem to remind us of Jesus in some way. There's people we read of and events we read of that remind us of Christ and what he came to do. And actually what they are is they are foreshadowing and they're showing us glimpses of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would come to do. 
We see it with King David as a shepherd king. He reminds us of Christ, our shepherd king. We see it with Joseph. We see it with Moses as the deliverer of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And he reminds us of Christ and the exodus that Christ would come to bring his people spiritually. But what I love about Jeremiah 31 is the end of that chapter goes on to speak as, as horrific and as, as troubling as verse 15 is. At the end of Jeremiah 31, what we have is a chapter to go on to speak of God's new covenant that he would instill with his people. But all this is happening and the purpose for it is found in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2. All of the events we've just read, they remained there until the, day, the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So why Egypt? There could have been other places that Joseph and the child and his mother could have gone to. Why Egypt? Well, we see why Egypt, because it was a fulfillment of another Old Testament verse. And this verse, out of Egypt I call my son, comes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And in Hosea 11, it's a chapter about the Lord's love for Israel. And how he called Israel out of Egypt. When the nation of Israel was just a toddler of a nation. Isn't it funny then? Is it a coincidence that Jesus was a wee toddler when he's called out of Egypt himself? There's no such things as coincidences in God's sovereign plan. Israel, friends, in the Old Testament was God's chosen people. Now again... We see God's sovereign plan all over the birth of Jesus. And it's no coincidence that the angel tells Joseph to take uh, Jesus and Mary to Egypt when Jesus was most likely a toddler. And if you know your Old Testament well, and even if you've gone to Sunday school once or twice when you were wee, you've probably heard the story of the exodus of God's people. You've probably heard the story about Egypt in the Old Testament. And Egypt is a significant part in the story of God's covenant people. When Hosea mentioned Israel in Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. When he mentions Israel being called out of Egypt, it is a direct reference to the exodus that takes place hundreds of years prior to Hosea mentioning it. Just in case you don't know, or just to give you a quick recap, God's people had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. God in Exodus 1 hears the cries and the prayers of his people. He remembers his covenant and he calls and raises up Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt and into a promised land. Now, it's very unlikely that Hosea 11 is a prophetic word about what would happen in the day of Jesus. It's very unlikely that Hosea was predicting that Jesus himself would be called into 
Egypt. But what Matthew does here is he is referring back to an Old Testament story that the prophet Hosea speaks of. And he points back himself, Hosea, to the exodus of God's people. And Matthew, in doing so, is reminding us and showing us and telling us that the one who's come, that Jesus, he is the new Moses. He is the better Moses. He is the greatest deliverer of God's people that this world has ever seen, will ever seen, and needs. What Moses did naturally, Jesus came to do spiritually. So why does Matthew quote Hosea 11, out of Egypt? And why in God's sovereign plan does Jesus end up as a child in Egypt? Well, friends, I think you know me. I am a simple guy with a simple message, and I want to make it as simple as possible. I think the main point that we read here is that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, that he is the embodiment of Israel. And that is really important, friends, because it means that we have a Savior which we can identify with. We have a Savior we can identify with. Jesus didn't just come to save us, but he came to be our mediator too. He has suffered in every way that we do. He became flesh to represent flesh. I have a Savior who will one day wipe away every tear from my eye. How does he know how to do that? Because Jesus himself wept. The hand that will wipe away my tears first wiped away his own. How could he tend to his people unless he first experienced what they go through but without sin. God saved his people, Israel. We read in Isaiah, for his glory. Friends, make no mistake about it. You have been redeemed and you have been saved for the glory of God. But God's people, Exodus 19 tells us, were meant to be a witness to the glory and the holiness of God as a nation set apart for him. And their purpose was to point others to God. The Lord saved Israel, yes, because of his covenant with them. But what is the promise we see him give to Abraham? That through you, all nations will be blessed. It was never meant to just be about the people of Israel. God had something much bigger at play. That nations would be blessed. Isaiah 49 tells us, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel, of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. But friends, Israel never fulfilled the calling God placed upon her. So he sent his son. We read also that Israel was meant to be the vine. 
Israel is referred to in the Old Testament as the vine. But Isaiah tells us that as a vine, she produced wild grapes. So as a vine, Israel was unfruitful. She didn't do what she was meant to do. She never bore fruit. So what did God do? He sent Jesus. And what did Jesus declare in John's gospel? I am the true vine. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, what he is saying here is, I am the embodiment of Israel. I am here to represent you before God Almighty. I've come to take your place. I'm going to live life for you. I'm going to do what you could never do. I'll fulfill the law for you. I'll die a perfect death for you. Jesus came to represent his people and he takes on this representation to the extent where he, he could declare, Israel, you were meant to be the vine. God's people, you were meant to be the vine, but you bore wild grapes. You could not bear the fruit that God wanted, so I've come and I will be the true vine for you. And all you have to do is abide in me and bear fruit. Jesus took on flesh. He became our mediator. He stood in our place. He represents God's people. And when Jesus is called out of Egypt, what God is signifying is the start of the new exodus. Not just out of the chains of Egypt, but out of the very bondage of sin. Not just into a land, promised land flowing with milk and honey, but into a glorious new kingdom where we will enjoy Christ and all of his benefits in all of his fullness. You see, friends, Emmanuel doesn't just mean that God is with us as in he's in the same vicinity as us. But he is truly Emmanuel. He is truly with us. One could say he's even standing or he stood in the trenches with us but yet without sin. He took on flesh, dwelt among us, became like us, but without sin. And friends, that was all needed for reconciliation because it was us that owed the debt. Jesus didn't know anything. It was us that owed the debt, but only God could pay it. So friends, Jesus has stepped into our Egypt. God sent his son to do what we could never do, to fulfill the purpose of his people, to be a light to the nation, to be the true vine, to bring him glory. And in all this, Christ has also achieved reconciliation for us with God. He has closed the gap between man and God as our mediator, as our representative, as our high priest. He has made peace with God Almighty. He's gone beyond the curtain which was torn in two at his death and he is forever interceding on behalf of us he is Emmanuel and we can now enjoy the glory of God as the adopted children of God engrafted into his glorious family through faith in the one who became us yet without sin who has suffered in every way that we do so that we could once again enjoy God's presence in all of his fullness. We're going to end our sermon this morning by watching a short video. And I saw this video a few weeks ago and it just, for me, 
displayed and portrayed a beautiful picture of reconciliation. And as you watch this, and as you see the reconciliation take place, I want you to take a moment and think about just how great, the, greater still the reconciliation between you and God Almighty is, which is only possible through the person, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Let's watch the video Silent Night.
only a drop in the ocean of the reconciliation that God has won for his people, only a drop in the ocean of the peace that God has brought to mankind, all because of Jesus and all for his glory. Friends, we don't know what this future holds, but we know who holds the future. And I pray each one of us can have that sure and certain confidence that we can face the future ahead of us with confidence that whatever happens, that we know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ himself, our Lord, our Savior, our representative before God Almighty, that he will be with us each step of the way. Amen.